This is episode 119 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks so much for joining me today. As we age, society can marginalize us, making us feel irrelevant. This is especially the case as America is a youth-focused culture. But we also marginalize ourselves through negative self-talk. Mary Fran Bontempo joins me today to discuss how aging can be a gift and how to make words like change, fear, and fine not be dirty words. Additionally, we also discuss how much of our identities are fixed by the stuff we accumulate. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Mary Fran, thanks so much for joining me today, and I'm excited to see how this conversation unfolds. Well, I'm delighted to be here, and again, I just want to thank you for taking on someone who identifies herself as a granny panties and dirty words lady. It's quite brave of you, so thank you. Um, it, it's important and incredibly hilarious at the same time. So, um, let's let's go back to um, how you got started um, and just, you know, you had a lot going on. You were turning 50 and you're tanking economy. You had a son with a heroin addiction and you had this great idea. I'm going to start writing about this. That's, that's not a usual pathway. So um, how did that come about for you? Well, I think like a lot of creative things, it, it came out of a dark place. I mean, I was just in a really, really bad spot. Um, and, you know, like in that kind of spiraling whirlpool where you realize that if you don't do something, you're going down. <laughs> so, as you said, all of these things, and obviously most most um, devastating was my son's issue with his heroin addiction, and he's doing very well now. I might, I might throw that in there. But... Um, you know, just in lamenting all of this uh, with a friend one day, I said, oh, I'm so not ready for granny panties. And that spark of that word, of that phrase, it kind of lit a little bit of a, a fire in me. And it was really what I needed at the time to pull myself out of a place. And I think creative people do that. They latch onto that spark and they just go with it and see where it's going to take you. And that's how that all started. From your perspective, I mean, here's the thing. We're all going to age. We're all going to get to that point to where we reach um, the, the early winter or winter of our lives. Um, and yet, I, what I've experienced is people in the late fall, early winter of their lives, like it's not one of those conversations we're having. Um, and for instance, I've, I've talked to plenty of creative people um, and I, I, I try to be understanding in a way, but they're like, you know, 55 or 60 and like, well, you know, I just don't have much time left and I don't have, I can't start. And I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't understand because, I mean, we should bet on living until we're 85 and being productive. And I agree. Yeah, I agree. And I, th I think one of the issues, and, and this is one of the things where um, I talk to women a lot about self-talk and the way they speak to themselves in their heads. I think what we do as we get older, we continue to define ourselves based on where we were and not based on where we are. So, you know, when you're younger and you have all these responsibilities of family and this and that and everything kind of pecking away at you all the time, yeah, it's overwhelming. And I'll admit, we're tired. You know, you get to a point where you're just tired. But that being said, if you can go forward with intention and recognize that now you can change things and go about things differently, the whole world opens up to you. I mean, I, I didn't know how to blog. I didn't know how to do any of this stuff. And I just... Googled it, figured it out, and taught myself, and here I am now. All right, so for people who um, are in that range and are thinking, you know, my, my career is done, like so on and so forth, there's, there's a lot of conversations that go. Um, I, I know there's a lot of paralyzed, and they're paralyzed a lot by where to start and how do I keep up or so on. So what would you say to someone in that position? Well, you know, I think, it's, I think the very basic thing is just start. Because the fact of the matter is, um, where I am now is not where I intended to be when I started all of this. And what ends up happening, I think, a lot of times is things evolve. They sort of grow organically. And, and the most important thing that you can do is not be cowed by things like technology and all that other stuff and recognize that you don't have to know everything. I sure as heck don't know everything. I know a tiny bit of what I need to know, but it was enough to get me um, off of the launch pad. 
and, and to get me started. And then I just kind of saw, well, what's going to happen next? And it really is a bit of a thrill ride because you kind of don't know, but start anywhere, pick something and see what comes next. Yeah, we live in a world right now where um, the the pace of change is unprecedented, right? Um, it's it, it just is, and I think there's the there's a lot of downside to that. But the upside is we're all learning this. We're all sort of evolving as we go along, and um, it doesn't matter whether you're 20 or 30. Like it's you're still going to have to be re-evolving. I, you know, again, I'm 30. How old am I now? I'm, I'm almost 37. Um, I have a birthday coming up soon, so I have to. <laughs> So, you know, I'm, I'm getting to that point where like, wow, I can't keep up with, you know, what's going on on Snapchat and Instagram and, and things like that. And I'm like, well, I could, right? I'm choosing not you to. Could, but that's exactly right. And that to me, that is the key. Exactly what you just said. It becomes a choice. And I mean, the fact of the matter is technology has changed the world exponentially and it's going to continue to do that. But you can't master everything, nor should you expect to, nor should you even want to. It would be exhausting. You'd spend all your time trying to figure stuff out. I mean, and these things disappear too. Look at at Vine. That's closing down. Look at um, Blab that Twitter also had. That's gone. So I think it's really, um, again, going back to that word intention. You know, you look at these things, you experiment with a couple of them. If it suits you, fine. If it doesn't, there's a million other things out there. Pick something else. But don't don't get mired in that idea of having to know it all and do it all. That's just never going to happen. And you'll, and you'll stagnate just like you said, paralyzed. Yeah. You know, we're talking a lot about mindset here, right? Having an open mindset and a a, um, learning mindset. I think there's also a mindset around aging that's worth discussing because it could be a gift or it could be a sentence, right? Absolutely. You know, look, let's, I, I think, most of the time we see it as a sentence. Um, I think sociologically speaking, especially women um, are much more disadvantaged as they get older, right? That, that um, aging is not kind um, to anyone, but especially to women, right? Uh, I would agree with that. <laughs> I, I don't think it's like true of the world. I think it's just the way that we perceive how things go. Um, so how do we flip the script and see it as a gift? Well, I think the biggest thing is, again, and I'll go, I'll go back to trying to figure out a new way to define where you are now. I mean, I, the thing that is, is, I think, most challenging for women, especially if you're a mother and you've had a family, you have been doing the same kind of thing for decades. So it's almost this cellular memory for you. Like your actions are on autopilot at this point. You know, you're waiting, even if your kids are out of the house, you're waiting for the phone to ring to see what the next crisis is that you're going to handle. And we have to intentionally learn to disengage from that stuff. Because before we can, you know, there was the, 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 the lean in concept, leaning into your own life. Before you lean into your own, you have to lean out of other people's. And I think that that's a key thing for women to to figure out where they can go next is lean out of your kids' lives a little bit. It's, if you did your job, it's time for them to figure it out. And by doing so, then you open up space, and that's what we need. We need to recognize that there's space, which can also be a scary thing, but it's opportunity as well. So what are some specific sort of strategies or tips that you would offer for, for parents and moms wanting to lean out of their um, out of the lives and the things that they're tending to that no longer are really um, appropriate for where they are. Bite your tongue until it bleeds. That's, that's the first thing. Just, just learn to bite your tongue. I mean, we, as, as mothers, our, our thing is giving advice and we're always giving advice. Um, but what I've learned is that most of the time, my kids know what they're supposed to do. If they come to me, they kind of want to hear themselves say it out loud and maybe see my nod every once in a while. But they kind of know what the deal is. Um, and don't insert yourself. Wait until they come to you. Don't, don't assume that just because you've been their go-to person in the past that they want to hear every single thing that you have to say. Um, and, and the third thing, and this is really hard for us, be prepared to watch them fall. And don't feel like you need to catch them every single time because that does no one any favors. It builds no resilience and our kids need that. So you can take little steps starting with 
biting your tongue and seeing if they can figure it out for themselves. Yeah, I, I would want to slide in, you know, the fact that there are really two different types of dependencies. There's a lot of dependencies, but there can be this negative codependency to where um, people aren't able to fall. And then you get into sort of these weird habits where you're like, I wish my kid would get out of the house. But then every time they, they make it like you're doing things that actively prevent them developing the resiliency to do there. So there's that type of negative codependency. But then there's this interdependency that you're really trying to get for where and, and they both end in dependency, but how they begin, exactly. how they begin are a lot different. Right. And so. Exactly. And I, and I think that is a key issue with a lot of women. A lot of women, when they get to that point where it's really time for them to be able to experience things on their own, they're terrified because they have no idea of how to create that create that next phase of their lives. So, you know, they, the, the, the idea, even if it's a subconscious one of their kids moving on and not needing them is like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? Um, but that's a really short, that's a short window. I mean, that, that, if that, when that happens, you move on pretty quickly. Let me just tell you, it, it ain't all that bad. It's pretty darn good when they fly the nest and you get, you get that time for yourself. Yeah. Well, I think, Having a, having especially your first child is an identity changing event, right? Um, For sure. You're not the same person you were before. Um, and so you spend 20 years or 25 years being that person. And I don't know that we take seriously enough that transition from um, it's, it's an identity shift when you're no longer the primary caregiver. Right? Well, and I think it also, and this is, this is pretty new to our generation. People are living so much longer now that, I mean, you know, years ago, a generation or two ago, when you got to this point, you were kind of looking at the sunset, you know? <laughs> so there wasn't that, that huge period of time that many of us are finding now where we have another 20, maybe even 30 years left. So it really is um, unique to this generation of people to figure this out. There's no real precedent to this. And I think that's what's scary, too, because, you know, we pride ourselves on being sort of innovative and, oh, we can figure it out. But there's there's no reference point for this. So we're all just flying blind. And that's a hard thing to do. Yeah, I mean, at a at a certain level, when you look at the progression of, you know, our lifespans, it used to be that women's lives are largely dominated in the earlier part around child care. Right. And we're talking 13, 14 years old, things like that. And then afterwards, we didn't live as long. Um, right. And we're really adjusting to this fact that now we have this segment of our lives pre-kids. We have this segment of our life like where we're having kids. But then there's this sort of, as you mentioned, this amorphous sort of life after kids, right? That is the unprecedented part is you can be productive, you can be contributive to society, you can live your own life. And you have that, that span of a long time, depends, depends on how you look at that, to, to do something different. For sure. And we're, you know, we're healthier now. So there's that part of it too. And I mean, for me, I think, you know, you add the wisdom that you've already gained up to this point in your life. It can be such a tremendously creative period of time that we frankly just didn't have time for prior to because you're busy with life. You're busy with raising your family. You're busy with paying bills and your job and, you know, yada, yada, go on from there. But when you come up against this period of time and the world is kind of open to you, if you are willing to go towards that with intention, gosh, I mean, the world's your oyster. There's so much that you can do. You mentioned earlier with your kids that at a certain point, they kind of know what they need to do and they just want to talk it out with you. Um, I'm curious. It seems like where we are is that um, people at a certain age kind of know what they need to do, but there's fear and discomfort and things like that, keeping them from doing that. So I'm wondering if we can actually name some of those fears. Um, because what I've learned is like, if we name what that fear is, then we can actually take some control over it and not let it beat us as opposed to just saying, I'm afraid or I'm uncomfortable or whatever that might be. Well, I think a huge part of it is um, it, it's simple, but complicated at the same time. It, to, to generalize, it's the obvious fear of the unknown. They don't know what's coming next. And yet, they have grown up with, um, you know, television and things, things on, online and TV shows and stuff where everybody's got it all figured out. So, they assume that they should have it all figured out. 
And the fact of the matter is nobody has it all figured out. And those shows that they watched were scripted anyway, although, you know, the, the reality shows, reality television. Can I just tell you that is my favorite not thing ever because there's nothing real about it. And yet um, I think this generation of young people has grown up with that and figuring that, first of all, they have to have it all figured out. Second of all, if they're not living in a $5 million mansion by the time they're 27, they've done something wrong, um, you know, and, and they have to have these wonderful careers and, and life just doesn't work like that. So I think what our kids' biggest problem is, is that when they see the natural progression of things, and of course, let me backtrack a little bit and say that because of what they've seen, they don't want to hear from their parents, look, that's not what we did. And no, no kid wants to hear it's not what we did. Well, when we were young, you know, but the truth of the matter is life hasn't changed all that much. It's a progression um, and it's not instantaneous and it's not instant gratification. And I think one of the fears for our kids, the biggest one is, is figuring out that progression. And, the, and that's the irony of it, because you don't figure out a progression. You just take steps, and the next thing that happens, you deal with it. Yeah, I mean, we, we like the idea of a progression. We like the sense of control and continuity. If I do this, then this happens. I was talking to a friend of mine recently, and I was like, you know, I miss being in the Army, because in some ways, you knew exactly what you needed to do. You knew exactly where you were. You knew exactly what positions you needed to take. Like in the midst of all the chaos that can happen around that, like you have a, a lot of certainty about where you are in the grand scheme of things. Um, entrepreneurship, not so much. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that that's, I think that's another fear that there's too much choice. Almost there's too many possibilities and they just don't know what to do with it. Um, and, and again, you can, you can plan until the cows come home, but the fact of the matter is the only thing that's available, available to you is that next step. And where that takes you, you're not always going to be able to figure that out. But staying in one place is not going to move you anywhere, so you really have to take a leap. And leaps of faith are hard for them, and I think particularly because their lives have been very structured and planned out. I mean, you know, we're the generation of parents who had our kids doing how many activities from the time they were little ones, they were playing soccer and this and that and the other thing. Um, an open space and an open life is a scary thing for them. Yeah. Open space and open life is a scary thing for a lot of people because at a certain point you have to sit back and figure out who the hell you are. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and who, who has the answer to that? I think that's another thing that people expect to get an answer to that question. And that's another thing that's constantly evolving. I'm not the same person now that I was five months ago. I, you're not. And, and un, unknowns are a really hard thing for our generation, our kids' generation to deal with. Yeah. So I think it's one of those things, and I've talked about this in other places, where I, I think once you let go of the idea that you had a calling or that there was some certain path that you were supposed to be on or there's some certain space that you're supposed to be, it actually opens up a lot of grace for you because I'm not trying to say there are no right and wrong answers. I'm just trying to say there's a lot of right and good options in front of you right now. And taking one of those and going forward is way better than just staying stuck sort of in this, I don't know what I'm going to do next. No one knows what they're going to do next. Someone just does something next and it happens. Exactly. And, and again, you know, to go back to circle back to what we were saying before, look at all the things that, you know, people who um, probably worked on things like Vine and Blab and things like that, that was going to be their career path. Well, guess what? No, it isn't. So now you have to figure something else out. And, you know, life isn't scripted like these reality shows. You, you take a step and you see where it leads you. And very often, if you're willing to do that, to open yourself up to that, as you said, that so many new opportunities will surface. And often it's things that you never really thought about. I mean, when I started all of this with the blogging and everything, I didn't expect to be writing books in a series and then speaking to women's groups and all this stuff. That wasn't part of the plan. I'm thrilled that it wasn't part of the plan. And the only way I got here was being open to the next thing, whatever that was. A major shift that's happened is um, we've gone from what I like to call a career world where you used to like get a job and work at a place for 15, 20 years and then retire to what I call project world, right? Where it's like three to five years, you work on something, then you move on. And we, at a certain point, 
know that we now live in project world. Right. And so when you mentioned people at Vine, I, I think most of them knew it was going to be a thing and then they were going to move on to something else. And then they were going to move on to something else. And you have to just accept that mindset because that's the way that it is. No one my age or younger that I know of goes to work at a company and thinks that they're going to retire from that company. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and then I think that the idea that if people can get it set in their head that this might only be something that lasts for a couple of years, that's okay. That's okay, especially given the exponential changes that, that we're finding. I mean, the next great thing may be right around the corner, and it could be a completely different thing from what you're doing right now. And I do think that that is one of the strengths of this generation if they allow themselves that flexibility, the adaptability that they have is huge. I mean, you know, my generation didn't grow up like that, but that adaptability and that flexibility to be able to do one thing today and then go home and work on your blog or work on your other part-time thing, you know, that's, that's really cool. And, and it's a tremendous growth opportunity for this generation of, of entrepreneurs. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's a tremendous growth opportunity for, um, you know, an older generation of entrepreneurs and an older generation of thinkers. And, you know, really, you, if we sort of started this like, um, and having the conversation about it. The fact of the matter is the contained wisdom in the older generation that's just, um, I, I won't, what I want to say here. I think there are far more vehicles for people to share that wisdom than that they're currently using. And I, I would say that it is the pendulum is swinging back to the side where that wisdom is being actually sought out. I think there was some backlash when, um, when technology exploded the way it did. And those of us who kind of were left out of that, at least initially kind of feeling like maybe we didn't have anything to contribute and, and society in general sort of supporting that mindset. But now, like I said, we're even though maybe the vehicles and the platforms that we're using to get things done have changed, the wisdom that you gather through a life lived is something that you don't get until you've lived the life. So why not surround yourself with people who can share some of that? Because it, it that's the kind of stuff that... Um, while your generation is really good with adaptability and flexibility, I think my generation's a little bit better with patience and seeing something through a little bit longer than maybe you would anticipate wanting to. So if we can find a way to mesh those two things, you know, we take a little of your adaptability and you guys learn a little of the, okay, let's chill out a little and see what's going to happen here. We can end up with really productive partnerships. Absolutely. And, um, what I'll say here real quick, and I know we don't want to spend too long on the technology. Um, I, here's what I'd say. If you can send an email, you can start contributing to the conversation. Exactly. And it goes back to what we just said. Start. Just start. Just, just get open the computer and start because that's your first step. And that's, again, to be cliched, every journey, you know, begins with one step. So start. So... Why is change a dirty word, though? Because that's really what we're talking about is, is people adapting to change and leaning into that change. And, you know, um, in your book, um, I, I have to make sure to get the titles, the title, right, the <laughs> woman's book of dirty words, right? Yes. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned a lot of different dirty words and change is one of those, right? And um, I'm curious of why. Well, I think it's because we fear it. Uh, I think it's, again, it goes back to that idea of the unknown I think for women in particular, especially, and, and I shouldn't say women in particular, anybody who is taking care of children or families or whatever, you know, you kind of have this plan and you want everything to work out. You were just saying back, you know, when you're in the, when you're in the service, you, you kind of have a plan and this is what you're supposed to do. And this is what's supposed to happen next. And when something comes along to change our plans, we kind of freak out. But what I try to remind people of is you're an expert at change already. Like, when's the last time your day went according to plan? I mean, when? Every single, you know, occasionally you get that, that golden day that that happens. But the fact of the matter is I think that we, we fear that word because we think it's just going to cause wreak havoc in our lives. And the fact is we've, we've, we've already got this. We, we make changes on a dime in a moment because we have no choice. Otherwise, you don't get anything done. 
a monkey wrench gets thrown in the gears and you reschedule or you juggle things or you whatever. So what I think is important is that people keep that idea about change in perspective. You, you've got this already. And sometimes even the changes that are thrust upon us, those are the ones that I think are really scary to people. And that's where change really becomes a dirty word. At the same time that I think if we talk about those catalytic moments in our life, it's normally a change that's thrust upon us in different ways, right? Those things that make us the best versions of ourselves are those things we never saw coming. It is. And, um, you know, I can speak a little bit about my son's situation with his addiction issues. I mean, that was, that was probably, well, it was no doubt the darkest point in my life. And then, you know, we were, I was in the perfect storm. I mean, that, that turning 50 thing, which can I just say, I'd love that number back again, because that was a while ago, but I'll take that back. But there was that and the economy and all these things. Um, and you, you kind of have a choice. You can either crawl into bed and throw the covers over your head, or you can look at it and think, all right, here I am. Where do I go from here? What can I do with this? And for me, it ended up being creating something lighthearted with the whole not ready for granny panties idea. I needed to laugh. I, I needed that. I desperately needed to laugh at that point in my life. So this thing then grew out of it. And I, I think that things can grow out of the worst um, changes and challenges that we have. And I'm not going to Pollyanna spin it and say it's all good, but I think if you... Um, again, can move through these things with somewhat of an intention, opportunities present themselves to, like you said, be your best self and be creative in the process. Yeah, I think I'm going to pause here. The trick is we typically underestimate our own capabilities, regardless of what, what's happening. And sometimes, not the Pollyanna spin it, but sometimes these external things happening and you having to respond, get you out of your underestimation of yourself and makes you rise to the challenge. That's ex that is exactly it. That's exactly it in a nutshell. You, it's, it's the cosmic kick in the seat is what it is. Um, it, it's very easy for us. One of the other dirty words in my book is the word comfortable. It's very easy for us to get comfortable and to just sit there. But, you know, I say comfortable soon becomes one of those beanbag chairs that you've shrunken into and you can't get yourself out of. So um, that those occasional cosmic kicks that we get that are not usually welcome are often the things that propel us to great moments in our lives. Absolutely. Um, this is a plug for my... Um, my colleague Todd Cashton in his book, um, The Upside of Your Dark Side, who writes a lot about comfort addiction, right? And the fact that we've gotten so um, addicted to being comfortable that we can't embrace these uncomfortable parts that are going to actually enable us to flourish and thrive. Um, yeah. And so just, just be aware of um, places in your life to where you're seeking comfort just because comfort is your default. Yes. Yeah. I mean, tra you know, transitions are, transitions are ugly. They're not, they're not fun for the most part, but they're far preferable because they're propelling you towards something than, like I said, having your butt in that, in that figurative beanbag chair and just staying stuck in one place. I mean, I hopefully have another 20, 30 years ahead of me. I, I don't want to be in one place. I want to keep moving. And the joy that you experience when you finally do that, if you open yourself up to that as you age, it continues to propel you forward to new experiences. Let's talk about the dirty word of fine, because when, as I was reading through things, I was like, you know, I really love that you pulled that out, because a lot of times you'll ask people, how are you doing? Fine. Okay. Like, things are good. <laughs> so on and so forth. So let's talk a little bit more about that. Um, what's your take on it? Well, one of the reasons that what I say about the word fine is that we've become too adverse to it. Um, I think we live in a world of superlatives, you know, where everything's got to be awesome or amazing or fabulous. And, you know, if you're, if you're on social media or you're on Facebook or anything like that, and you're not using superlatives all the time, like the superlative police will kick you off of Facebook because everything's got to be awesome. And the truth of the matter is, not a whole lot in your everyday existence is going to be awesome. And that's fine. It's fine because 
it, trying to be awesome all the time is exhausting, not to mention impossible. So my take on it is not that we accept fine as in living life in meh and yeah, okay, everything's okay, not that, but recognizing that conversely, you can't expect yourself to be awesome every minute of every day. And accepting fine and moving on is very often just what you need to do. Be okay with fine. Be okay with fine. Um, my thing about fine is this. I, I think there are other words that we can use that describes one state better, right? Because fine can also be a like, mm, right? Um, and where it's like, you know, I'm content with, with the way things are. Or I, th- I think there are different things that we can do. So my thing is wanting people to be more intentional and expressive about their actual experiential state, right? Um, I think that's really true. Um, but I think one of the, the key things about the word fine that people forget is it used to mean a thing of high quality, you know, like a fine wine or a fine garment. And we have turned it into meh, you know, like this, eh, it's okay. Um, and it's kind of become, as you had said earlier about something like this default, like, yeah, I'm okay. Um, so in that, in that sense, it's not okay to, to be good with that word. And, and I think you're right. I think it, it also... Um, calls for a, a little bit more introspection, not navel gazing, but a little bit more introspection as to just really how good life is for most of us. I mean, uh, despite all the belly aching complaining that a lot of us do, look where we are. You know, for the most part, we're in a pretty good place. And I think expressing gratitude for those things um, is key to uh, opening your, your world up to whatever good things the universe is going to send your way. Absolutely. And, and the challenge is it's socially acceptable to complain. It is not socially acceptable to be publicly grateful. You That's know, true. like you, you, it's, it's very awkward. You meet a group of people and you're like, how's your day? And it's like, you know, my day has been amazing. I had a great time with my kids. And you go through as many ways as your day has been um, good or content or met to plan. And people are like, I don't know what to, <laughs> How do I respond to that. <laughs> like you didn't complain about the traffic. You didn't complain about the food or being busy. Like it is, honestly, we don't have the social muscle to be able to process in many groups, right? Process people being grateful for their lives and talking about the good things in their lives. Um, I think that's true. And I, you know, I wonder if it's some kind of a weird, I don't know. This is going to, this might be a bit of a stretch, but I grew up, um, I grew up as a Catholic and guilt is a big thing for us. We're really good at guilt. And I think any time that you um, talked about how well you were doing or how well things were going, it was almost seemed like a bragging kind of a thing. Um, and, and there wasn't that great and suffering. We're, we're big on suffering. So, you know, if you're suffering and if things are terrible, then you're more godlike. Well, I don't buy into that, but I do think there's an undercurrent of that in our, um, still left over from our puritanical kind of days where we all came from that thing where, you know, if you talk about things being too good, then, well, she must think she's better than everybody else. No, I'm just expressing gratitude for it. Expressing gratitude. And again, I think we, we live in such a bipolar um, region where like you can, if you're being grateful for things, you're not paying attention to all the bad things that are happening. And I'm like, well, you know, the news is doing a pretty good job of that, right? Um, we don't need more people necessarily out there. Now, some issues are more important than others to talk about. Um, but yeah, it's just a very interesting thing. Like imagine changing the way in which you have, you, you meet with your friends and saying, you know, rather than just starting with idle chit chat, we start with like three things we're grateful for today, right? Or what's been great over the last week that you want to share with the group. It changes that dynamic. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're on a good tangent here, but I think it, it gets us to the point to where we get beyond fine and things don't have to be awesome at the same time. They can be good and they can be um, nourishing for us. Um, and, you know, why don't we focus more on that? I mean, I think it's funny. I think that it's amazing that people don't realize what a single word, what kind of impact that can have. I, a couple of years ago, I had a relative in the hospital and um, I passed this young nurse who was just sitting working at a computer. And I said, how are you? And she looked up at me and she said, blessed. Well, 
I, I mean, that response just blew me away, that one word. And it's, it literally stopped me in my tracks. And I looked at her and she just almost had this beatific look on her face because she had decided, she had decided to focus on that. And I think that, again, brings us back to this idea about so much of what's in our head and the talk that we run through our head is a choice. And we have to make the choice that makes us feel good and put something positive out into the world. Yeah, and and we mirror and project our inner state, right? Yes. And so if she's feeling blessed, she's able to mirror and project feeling blessed, right? If you're feeling sort of mad and bland, right, then you're going to be able to mirror and project that. If you're mirroring, like if you're really frustrated about everything that's not going right, you're going to mirror and project that. And um, not to go, again, super Pollyannish, but the data is the same. The, the, what you're observing in the world is largely the same, right? It's how one understands and puts that in a broader perspective of thing that makes a lot of difference. And so, you know, you can say, ah, I'm getting older and things are going like such and such. And, you know, my life, I've got more days behind me than I do in front of me. Right. And all of that, well, in some ways, the data supports that, but the data also supports, wow, I've lived a really full life and I've got a lot to share. And there's a lot of stuff available for me to do right now that I couldn't have dreamed of 20 years ago. Right. And I have time and I have a lot of passions right now. Right. There's a, there's ways to change that. So you could change that sort of depressive into an exciting thing at the same time. And the data supports both. Right. And it's, and, it, and again, it's that internal dialogue. And, you know, I think if people would just kind of hold a, a figurative mirror up to themselves every once in a while, and, you know, just think for a minute, how do you feel when you're around somebody who's, you know, a Debbie Downer all the time and constantly complaining? Nobody wants to be around that. So if you can recognize that you don't like hearing that from other people, then maybe be a little bit more aware of what you're putting out there. And again, that internal dialogue, that self-talk that you put out there about where you are in life and your age and what you're capable of and all that, you know, like fake it till you make it. If you're, if you're not thoroughly convinced that you still have a lot of life and, and wonderful things ahead of you, fake it till you make it. Tell yourself that, yeah, this is going to be a great day and, and I'm going to check out one new opportunity today and see if you don't know where you're going or you don't know what you're, you know, what you're headed towards because the opportunities are there and so much of it is about how our subconscious and then our conscious leads us to or away from those things. Yeah, I'm going to piggyback on something that Mark and Angel um, Chernoff has said in, in a talk we were together, but it's largely this. Make yourself talk as compassionate as the way you talk to other people. Exactly. Like, I tell, I tell women's groups all the time. Um, it's funny because whenever I speak in front of people, you know how they, they read your little introduction and all that stuff. And very often I'll get up in front of people and I'll go, you know, when I hear that introduction, I think, wow, she is really cool. This woman is really cool. And then I realize that I wrote it. Then I remind myself <laughs> that I wrote it. <laughs> so, but what I tell women and people all the time is, Give your, you and your girlfriend, somebody sit down with each other one day and write, write an introduction for one another. The way we see our friends and the way we speak to our friends, again, as you just said, it's so full of compassion and love. We have to turn a little bit of that back onto ourselves. And sometimes I think it helps me to do that when I think of myself as a child. I, sometimes I talk to myself like I'm that little girl because it's very much easier for me to feel protective and warm towards that little girl than it is towards the adult who's made so many mistakes and has so much baggage. So, you know, if you tweak the way you talk to yourself and the image that you're projecting of yourself, it's much easier to be kind and compassionate to you as you would to your best friend. Exactly. Because you would never, uh, there are some things I've said to myself and I'm like, I would never say that to one of my friends. Right. I would, I would look at, again, look at the world, look at the data, look at what they've done. And, and really say like, no, like this is what's true. Like this is a story. This is what's true. Or at least this, they're both stories and this one has just as much weight as the other one. So why am I telling that to myself? Like, um, as, again, an aside, sometimes when I'm like feeling self-doubt, I'm like so on and so forth. I'm like, well, what would my friends tell me about my, about my ability to do this? And they have historically been more correct than I have. <laughs> I am a really bad like, gauge of what I'm able to do. 
So how about I just believe like a hundred of them and believe the one of me. Exactly. And, and again, you know, um, if you can't, if you can't believe yourself, then fake it till you make it and believe what everybody else is telling you about you. Um, it's, it's so, and again, I think it's hard for some people. I'll go back to this whole Catholic guilt thing again and this pride and all that other stuff that we, that we were taught was sinful and wrong. And, you know, you're not supposed to feel good about yourself. Well, if you're not feeling good about yourself and if you're not feeling positive, you're not going to add a thing to the world. You're not going to add a thing. And isn't that what we're all here for? I mean, to just somehow or another make this better. So um, I think that you really have to divest yourself of some of the things that are sort of, again, imprinted in your cellular memory that maybe are just old things that are not serving you anymore. Just get rid of them. Drop the rock and, and move towards the light. Yeah, drop the rock, move towards the light. The other thing that I would want to say here is like, um, I've been talking to a lot of friends about this after reading sort of the life-changing magic of tidying up. And yeah, um, there is, and I think this is relevant for people um, across all generations, but especially if you've been here long enough to accumulate a lot of stuff, right? The second you start letting go of that stuff, the second you actually be, are able to start redefining who you are, right? Because we don't, I think, realize how much of our identities are trapped in stuff and kids' clothes and, you know, that couch that you bought 10 years ago that you didn't know what to do with and you put it in that random room, but you really don't like it, but it's still sitting there because you don't know what to do with it. And that closet of doom, because I think we all have the closet of doom, (laughs) right? Where the stuff disappears in there. (laughs) The black hole. The black hole, right? (laughs) But you know where it is, right? It it, it occupies a place in your psyche because you know know it's there. You know you got to get to it at some point, right? And the second you start letting go of some of that stuff, um, you start able to redefine what you want your space to look like. And when you redefine what you want your space to look like, you start redefining what you want your life to look like. And so sometimes it's as simple as just decluttering and getting rid of stuff and and going through that process. And I don't think that we realize how much of an intangible tie we have to things um, one of the things that she says in that book is when she, whenever she gets rid of something, she thanks whatever that is for its usefulness in her, in her life. And at first, you know, when I first read that, I thought, well, that sounds dumb. And then I did it. And, and it was very freeing. I was able to let go of it and say, okay, well, now maybe somebody else can use you. Um, and, and lessening my attachment to stuff also lessened my attachment to the like sort of mental threads that were attached to that stuff. And, and then suddenly I had space in my head as well as in my environment. Yeah. And though it seems kooky to thank an item for the work that it's done, um, you can buy, in, buy into that particular way, but you can also see that it's much like writing a forgiveness note to someone and not sending it. It's not about the person. It's about you. It's about you recognizing that there is a place and time in which this had utility. And now it's not that place. And you can let it go, right? And so you can either think about it about the thing, or you can think about it about your perspective to that thing. And and that's I think why letting go of so much stuff is freeing because you're essentially telling your the world you spend the most time around, you have served a purpose to get me here. But I no longer really need that purpose anymore. I'm in a different place. And I'm releasing you, i.e., releasing my past, and I can move forward. And I think that's why it's so powerful. Like, and, you know, there, there's a lot of self-talk we can do, but a lot of times it's just like cleaning out the garage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, get the, get the broom and sweep out your, sweep out your head. Um, and, and recognize that letting go of things is not a weakness. I think sometimes we think that, we, again, this goes back to the way we define certain words and the way we talk to ourselves about certain words, letting go and surrendering to things. You know, my favorite movie in the whole world is The Wizard of Oz. And I always say that I think the Wicked Witch was a genius because when she wrote Surrender Dorothy across the sky, you know, in her green smoke from her broom, everybody thought that was a bad thing. And I'm looking at it now as an adult going, yeah, just, just surrender, just turn it over, let it go. See, you know, we have a friend who says, float on your back and swim with the, with the river. Stop trying to fight the tide all the time. And, and a lot of times as you do that, 
you see these things that no longer have use for you, but did at one point, just, just going away. And it's, um, again, it clears space in your head as well as, as in your surroundings. And that is a wonderful thing. And I also think it, there is a generational tie here because, um, you know, after the depression of the 20th century, right, um, there really was a scarcity mindset, legitimately so, around goods and stuff and stockpiling and things like that. And I think some of us inherited that from our parents and, you know, maybe our grandparents. And so um, the ironic thing about that is, is that even the reason why we hang on to stuff is sort of scarcity or fear-based. Like what happens if what I have goes away? Well, you can rebuild it, right? Um, you can rebuy it. You can do all sorts of things and you can respond to what is rather than what might be. And I think it was Jefferson who said, um, oh, the pains that have cost us the evils that have never come to pass, right? Some, that's paraphrasing, but it's like, how much of our life do we worry and fret and suffer for things that will never come to pass? Um, as opposed to how much of our lives do we, really intentionally uh, practice gratitude and awareness and presence with the great things that are in our life um, before they pass on as well. And, and I, I think that this, um, this generation, um, one of the things, the fact that the world has gotten um, somewhat smaller um, in terms of communication and, and how we travel and how we get around I think one of the advantages to that is that experiences have become more the thing that people are seeking as opposed to things when families and when um, society was more in place, if that makes any sense. Um, you know, people tended to live like I'm, I'm from Philadelphia and, and still in Philadelphia, there's the Italian neighborhood and the Polish neighborhood and the, and those people went there and they stayed there. They lived there. They shopped there. They spent their entire lives within maybe a, you know, a 10, 12 block area. But the way we live our lives now, so, so the consequence of that was that things became important because there was nothing else. They went, their things were all they had. But now I think that we pursue experiences more. The things aren't that important. Um, it's, it's, it's getting somewhere, seeing something new, it's meeting new people, um, because we can, and we couldn't do that before. So I think that that's a shift that's been beneficial to us too, and divesting ourselves of stuff. Yeah. I mean, when you're poor and legitimately worrying about food and, um, you know, having a roof over your head and beds and things like that, yeah, the accumulation of stuff actually has a really, um, marked difference to your quality of life. Um, I think we're just getting at the point in a lot of places in the U.S. I'm, and what we've learned through the recent election is not all places in the U.S., right? But in a lot of places in the U.S., um, most of us are at the point where there's diminishing returns for stuff, right? Um, if you got a closet full of shirts, another shirt is not going to make you happier. The process of getting the shirt might make you happier, but the shirt itself, not so much. Right. It's not going to do it. I mean, I... I, I have found um, we are blessed to have a little tiny house at the beach in New Jersey. And because it's a tiny house at the beach, it has what we need in it. We have beds, we have a kitchen table and chairs, we have a sofa, but we don't have a whole lot more than that. And we don't need a whole lot more than that. And that is the beauty of it. And it's uh, when my kids were young, we would go down in the summer and the kids would work and I was always writing so I could work from wherever. And we lived down the shore in this little tiny house. And then when we would come home here, um, the house was so much bigger and so crammed with stuff. I'd walk into it and I was overwhelmed. And I think, well, why do I have all of this? Um, and then still grappling with the, oh my gosh, I can't get rid of this stuff. I've mastered that over the years. But it certainly was a lesson to me and continues to be that I am at my happiest and freest when I'm not thinking about my stuff. Exactly. Thinking about your current stuff, how you're going to get new stuff, <laughs> right? Uh, how you're going to get rid of stuff you don't want. Um, it's just stuff. Right? Yeah. Yeah. My husband and I, you know, Christmas is coming up and all that. And for the last number of years, we don't, we don't buy each other anything. We don't need anything. We'll go out and we'll enjoy whatever. We'll go see a show or we'll have dinner or whatever, but we don't, we don't want any more stuff. My husband keeps saying, he just, I want to give stuff away. I want to give stuff to other people. So, um, there's a real lesson in that. And, and sometimes I think that comes as you, as you age, 
you know, you recognize, just like you said, another shirt's not going to do it for you. Yeah, well, and I think the advantage is actually as their parents get older and as they start having to deal with their parents' legacy stuff, right? That's an eye. Uh, it's like, oh, wait a second. If I don't do something now, like my kids are going to have to do something with all my stuff, right? Exactly. Yeah, and you don't, and you don't want to do that to your kids. I mean, I... I I do think, again, as you said, it's a sort of a generational thing. And like my parents' generation and their generation, they just held on to everything. I mean, I remember cleaning out my grandmother's house. um, And this is why, by the way, I say, if you have stuff, use it. Don't don't stick it in a drawer somewhere because she had all of these things that she was saving for good, as she put it, for when the good occasion would come that she was going to use it. And she passed away and never used any of it. And she had these beautiful linens and things that she had folded in a drawer that when I took them out, they literally disintegrated in my hands. So if you have stuff, use it. If you're not using it, give it to somebody else so they can use it. And, and then everybody wins. <laughs> yeah, I realize that now we've, we've talked about stuff for about a good 10 minutes. But, I, <laughs> you know, a, a lot of our lives, and this is a, a transgenerational thing, a lot of it is... Um, really tied to stuff mm-hmm. and letting go of stuff and, and changing your relationship to stuff actually changes your relationship to the life that you can live in front of you. Right. So. And if you bring it all, if you, I mean, to circle all the way back to, um, you know, what we're talking about at the beginning with this redefining things and, and redefining, letting go of stuff in your head, you know, let go of that talk that's, that's keeping you stuck um, because those things accumulate in your head too. The way you think about certain things, the way you define certain words, the way you perceive certain things, that stuff can clog your, your, your head just as much as your closet of doom. (laughs) So, so, you know, bringing it back to full circle, clean out the stuff in your head as well, because that's what we're talking about. Absolutely. Um, So if people were to remember nothing else, there's just one thing from your body of work and from this episode, what would you want that one thing to be? Hmm. I think I would want them to define themselves on the basis of who they want to be, no matter their age, no matter their place in life, and to recognize that it all begins in the six inches between your ears. Your self-talk is where your definition of yourself and your life starts and grows and continues to move forward. So, be intentional about how you speak to yourself. Fantastic. Mayor Fran, thanks so much for um, jamming with me today. It's been wonderful. It was great, Charlie. I appreciate the time and the conversation was delightful. So thank you. Okay, Creative Giant. So you heard it from Mary Fran. Um, what can you do to change the way you define yourself? And how can you change that definition to be who you want to be, regardless of where you are in life? Until next time, stand tall. If you liked this episode, you'll like episode 20 with Jennifer Boykin and episode 15 with Lucy Purse. If you're digging the Creative Giant Show, I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a rating or review on iTunes. If you're not familiar with how to do this, there's a walkthrough available on the podcast page on ProductiveFlourishing.com. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for creative giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.